Hello, and welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, we'll be taking a look at the second of Lovecraft's New York stories, the first of which we've already looked at in a two-part series. That story was the horror at Red Hook. So he, uh, of the New York stories, is the most cosmic. It comes the closest to, I think, uh, cosmic horror. I think horror at Red Hook gets there somewhat, but it's a much more grounded story in a lot of ways dealing with cults and immigrant communities and things like that and the next one as we'll see uh, cool air is much more of a small creepy science fiction story um, but he uh, i think comes the closest to giving us lovecraft's overall perspective on new york uh, what he loved about new york what he despised about new york and what he saw as the future not just of new york but i think of all all civilizations so it's an important tale for that for that reason i think if you know it's i like the horror at red hook a lot more but you know if i if someone asked me like i want to know about lovecraft's views on new york what story should i read i think he uh gets there in a much more broad sense it, it looks at all those different aspects of it it does get to the immigrant stuff too um now this story was was written in new york uh, just as like the horror at red hook um, before he returned to Providence, it was written in, on one day on August 11th, 1925, published in Weird Tales in 1926. So um, actually, Horror at Red Hook took a little bit longer to finally be published. That one wasn't published until 1927. So um, this one came out pretty quickly after he had uh, written it. Now, the story is that this is based on one of Lovecraft's own experiences, you know, not in the sense that he met a guy from the 18th century who took him to his house and showed him a, a time portal, uh, which is what happens in the story, uh, but in the sense that it's, it's based on one of his night wanderings, it seems. Um, and that's where we start off in the story. So our narrator is a poet. He's very much like a Lovecraft. This is one of the stories where the narrator certainly is thought of or could be very easily thought of as a Lovecraft villain. Um, and he's been in New York for a while, but he's to, and he wants to do his poetry, but he can't. He doesn't feel at home. He feels out of place. And he feels he's losing himself in the city. And where does he find some comfort? Well, he finds it in late night wanderings and visit and to walking tours of the city because you know this comes up a little bit in the horror at red hook too um not really much at all in cool air but uh in these two new york stories it comes up um but stronger here is this kind of feeling of time this idea that it comes up in the horror at red hook in this idea that new york like red hook is 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 somewhat expanding and growing and it's growing on the on the corpse of something that that came before right um that's what the feeling you get here is that you, you know walk down the streets of new york you get to some neighborhood it has this old architecture but right next to it is modern architecture um and you this might be an immigrant community but it originally was a very angle community maybe a couple centuries ago you know, obviously, a lot of places in New York, you don't get that feel. But where this is set, this is set in Greenwich Village, so it's it's set in like old, you know the you know the kind of old the old New York core there. So you really are constantly getting the sense of time and people being out of time and the city itself being out of time. So I think it 
That's what's really going on here. Now, our, the he of the story, the one he meets, this isn't the most well-named story, actually. It's, it's, you know, I don't think much of the name of the story anyways. But I, I, the he, the titular he is a temporal throwback, too. He's in the 18th century, and our narrator is able to witness time unfold in New York. He's able to see the past, he's able to see the future through this kind of time portal. Um, but it's he doesn't need that magic to see this time travel in a way. And I think that's, you know, Lovecraft didn't. Lovecraft was able to just walk through the city, see these bold buildings, and, and feel the sense of history and, and the unfolding of time. And also, as we know from his letters, predict the future. Um, so he's he has a vision of what the future will be. Uh, it comes off really strongly in his 1930s letters, but in his 1920s letters, he's already talking about this. It's like the machine culture, the you know the rise of modernism in art and literature, and what that is going to do to those fields. But more broadly, just this: what is machine culture going to do to societies and governments and and individuals? as it kind of gets as we get deeper and deeper into it right so in a sense he is able to see the future uh, by looking at what's around him at least he tries to do that and you can debate how successful he was at predicting the future um, of you know his his vision of of the future being this uh, mechanized culture run by bureaucrats uh mongolized lacking culture i mean that that's kind of it in a in a nutshell um, so anyways, in this story, we have this guy, this poet, who's walking around the streets of New York to find a, some comfort. The first sentence tells us he's, quote, trying to save his soul and vision. Well, the direct quote would be, I was walking desperately to save my soul and vision. Um, he realizes coming to New York was a mistake. Uh, if he was going to look for inspiration for his poetry, he simply can't find it. Why not? Well... We're told uh, the Cyclopean modern towers and pinnacles that rise blackly Babylonian under waning moons. Now, I, I know many Lovecraft readers uh, probably wonder what is Cyclopean, because it comes up a lot when talking about weird architecture. Uh, he talks about non-Euclidean geometry, too, which I think most people maybe have a hard time getting their head around what that really means or would look like. Um, but Cyclopean is another one of those words. It's like, well, what exactly is this supposed to look like? And various artists have tried to depict it. But here he's basically associating Cyclopean with modern architecture. So think skyscrapers, think, think uh, the kind of modern cube department buildings and things like that. <clears throat> now for Lovecraft, that's architecture that doesn't have any soul at all. It's, it's basically dead. It's, it's, um, it's horrific. In fact, that's what he writes here, uh, still in the first paragraph, quote, I have found instead only a sense of horror and oppression which threaten to master, paralyze, and annihilate me. So much of the first uh, third of the story or so is this kind of walking tour he gives of, of a Greenwich Village neighborhood late at night. Um, there's, he's able to imagine some things. He's able to see glimpses of like mythical old cities. He mentions El Dorado. Um, Samarkand, that, that's not mythical, but, you know, in the European mind, it was kind of mythologized in the writings of, of like Marco Polo and people like that. Um, and he writes, shortly afterwards, I was taken through the antique ways so dear to my fancy, narrow curving alleys and passages where rows of red Georgian brick blinked with the small paneled 
doormans above pillared doorways that looked on gilded sedans and paneled coaches. End quote. So, I mean, such a sense of time travel here um, brought about by the architecture. I, I think this you see this again in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. But, you know, another, I think, strength of he is it's so much about architecture, at least the first half of the story. And even the second half doesn't shy away from architecture as a major theme. Um, but this desire to be a poet, it's not going to do it in this place that's so Alexandrian. Uh, to use the language that Lovecraft would often use. Here he uses the word Babylonian, but that's often interchangeable, in, I think, in Lovecraft's writings. Um, but there's a glimpse of the good old days that you can get to. Now, notice the word language he uses here is, I was taken, or he found himself. You know, this is before he met the he. It's not till the third page that he is met. So who's bringing, who's, how's he, where, you know, what's taking him there? Well, it seems it's, it's just the mindless, unconscious decisions of, of the night wanderer. Someone just walking around the city saying, oh, I'll go this way, I'll go that way. You run into things, but it's not like conscious. You're, you're just sort of wandering, uh, and, you know, going places where, where you get taken to and observing what you see. Um, you know, I, I think when you read so much about what Lovecraft thought about New York and you read a story like this, you know, you got to imagine he protests a bit too much in his hatred of New York. I mean, he must have liked some of it. There's things he really must have adored about this city. Maybe small glimpses. Uh, he certainly didn't like the social situation in New York. But in terms of architecture, he wasn't fully discontent. He certainly found plenty to adore about this. Uh, in fact, we're told, this is on page three. I'm still working off the Klinger uh, new Beyond Arkham anthology of Lovecraft's stories. Um, he actually says he was able to write a few poems. He was able to get some hope uh, from these night um, travels. But by and large, the story we're told here is of New York, a dead city. He even uses this word uh, uh, embalmed. Quote, uh, it's not a sentient perpetuation of old New York as London is of old London and Paris of old Paris but that it is in fact quite dead. It's sprawling body imperfectly embalmed and infested with queer animate things which have nothing to do with it as if it was in life. Um, and this is what leads him to have his sleepless nights, his realization that, that the city is dead. And what's killing the city? Well, we're once again told it has a lot to do with the immigrants. Uh, he writes on the previous page, the throngs of people that seethed through the foam-like streets were squat, swarthy strangers with hardened faces and narrow eyes, shrewd strangers without dreams, without kinship, to the scenes about them who could never manage aught to a blue-eyed man of the old folk, with the love of fair green lanes and white New England village steeples in his heart. Definitely, this is Lovecraft here, this narrator. Um, so, he meets the man, uh, and then we get a description of this neighborhood, this courtyard in Greenwich Village that he, that he, that where he runs into this man. He's just a man in a coat. We don't get much, much of a description of him yet, but he came to him. It's 2 a.m. one August morning during one of these night walks, and he begins to follow him. And as he follows him, he seems to be going back in time. Um, but I, I want to mention here that Lovecraft writes a fair amount about exploration, and often the explorations are misguided like at the mountains of madness or the shadow of time you know this idea you shouldn't kind of pick at the scab too much we've talked about that plenty of times it, it's all the way back in uh, the statement of randolph carter right it's, 
digging into those books, following its mysteries, it's not a good idea. Um, and here it's not a, really presented as a good idea either, but you can't help but see that there, what's pulling our narrator is this kind of fascination with the past. And he gets pulled in in a way that's the most likely to seduce him, and that is the architecture, the neighborhood becomes progressively older. There is time travel throughout this, this story. I mean, the heart of the story, I guess, is this time portal that he's able to look through, but there's shifting timescapes throughout the, the narrative. Now, when we finally get the description of the man, it's it's definitely uh, a chance for Lovecraft to talk in, in racial terms. He's of old New York, meaning Anglo-Saxon, uh, unlike most of the people in the city. Uh, he also looks cadaverous and pale and old. Quote, his, old, his own face was in shadow, and he wore a wide-brimmed hat, which somehow blended perfectly with the out-of-date cloak he affected. But I was subtly disquieted even before he addressed me. His form was very slight, almost Thin almost to cadaverousness, and his voice proved phenomenally soft and hollow, though not particularly deep. He had, he said, noticed me several times in my wanderings and inferred that I resembled him in loving the vestiges of former years. Um, and later on, we get the description of, uh, that's more racially uh, <clears throat> suggestive. Quote, it was noble, even handsome elderly continents and bore the marks of a lineage and refinement unusual for the age and place. End quote. So I think he's suggesting here this in this language of refined language lineage, not like the people in New York now. It's kind of of old Anglo-Saxon, right? But there's a kind of a strangeness in seeing and witnessing this pure lineage. There, it's it's like rare in the city. Um, so he starts to get this tour of the city with this old this well, this man, this he, and you start to get this kind of stranger architecture um, um, before him. Uh, he, you know, the things we saw were old and marvelous, Lovecraft writes, or at least they seem so in the few straggling rays of light by which I viewed them. And I shall never forget the towering ionic columns and fluttered plisters and urn-headed iron fence posts and flaring lintel windows and decorative fanlights that appeared to grow quainter and stranger the deeper we advance into this inexhaustible maze of unknown antiquity, end quote. Now, I'm sure you could say, hey, I've been in New York and I've seen ionic columns i've seen iron fence posts and i've seen flaring lintled windows decorative families i've seen all this stuff in new york it exists and yeah it it does but architecture is is, is a means of time travel i think lovecraft seems to really believe this that's why he goes on all these tours to countrysides and goes to these places and sees this stuff that's why he writes so much about architecture i think um, now, the suggestion here, as we get later on, is that he is almost going back in time, um, in, a in a sense, because the city becomes darker. Maybe they're just going into a dark alley, but it's specifically said that um, they lose the lighting, the street lighting, and only every seventh building is, is lit. Um, so, I don't know. I get the suggestion of time travel here. But anyways, he finally takes him to this house. And he goes into this house, and the house itself is, is ancient. Um, and it's ancient, we know from the smell, quote, the reek of infinite mustiness, um, decay, he also smells. The door is locked behind him, and now he's in this house that's really an 18th century throwback uh, in every way. Um, quote, 
In this feeble radiance, I saw that we were in a spacious, well-furnished paneled library dating from the first quarter of the 18th century with splendid doorway pediments, a delightful Doric cornice, and a magnificently carved ornamental with scroll up, scroll and urn top. Uh, above the crowded bookshelves at intervals along the walls were well-wrought family portraits, all tarnished to enigmatic dimness and bearing an unmistakable likeness to the man who now motioned me to a chair besides the graceful Chippendale table. So he's very, very careful in setting up this setting to be 18th century, right? The classical revival, right? The neoclassicism is certainly suggested here. He, we actually get both Doric and Ionic architecture. And if you haven't taken an art history class, I or aren't familiar with that. They're just two of the major styles of Greek architecture. If you study uh, Greek temples, you, you're familiar with the two sides, two styles. Um, but then he reveals his clothes. He takes off like his jacket and he reveals that he's in a quote, full mid-Georgian costume from cuned hair to and neck ruffles to knee breeches, silk hose and a buckled shoes that I had not previously noticed. So he himself is a, a throwback as is the building, as is the, the interior, as is the neighborhood. So we get this um, uh, time travel in material culture, if not reality. So then we finally hear from the man. I think this is basically the first time. I, I think the narrator reports that he said some things before, but this is the first like recorded speech we get from the man. And he says, you know, you're a man. You're like me. You have these eccentric habits. You don't have to. I don't have to apologize for this costume I'm wearing. You understand it. You know the times were better back then. And you can understand why I wear this. I don't know. I mean, I guess Lovecraft believed Roman Roman times were better. He never he dressed in a toga very often. I don't know. But it's convincing enough, I guess, to this guy, um, to this narrator. Uh, but then he tells the story of the history of, of New York. And this is great stuff, where he talks about the growth of the city, how it engulfed Greenwich, how this neighborhood, this community, this architecture, this style, this way of life all gets engulfed with the spread of New York. Quote, it hath been my good fortune to retain the rural seat of my ancestors swallowed through it, was, though it was by two towns, first Greenwich, which built up hither after 1800, and then New York, which joined on near 1830. There are many reasons for the close keeping of this place in my family. I have not been remiss in discharging such obligations. Um, so then he talks about this squire who helped maintain this town and was also interested in like the occult. So we finally get in a, a mention of the occult as we expect we're going to get in many of these Lovecraft stories. Here, the person who kind of brings this into the family is this squire from the 60, 1760s from the 18th century. Obviously, the suggestion at the end is it's this man. This man is a squire who's somehow been able to stay alive, right? But he has some discovery that needs to be guarded. And so there's a lot of, in just one short paragraph, there's a lot of um, exposition about the, the history of this family and particularly introducing this squire. Our narrator just sort of sits there and listens, and then he goes on talking more about the discoveries of his ancestors. And essentially, he's a kind of alchemist um, but it gets really wild here because it's like the typical tradition seemed to come to America from Eurasia, from abroad. Um, 
I can't think of any other story where he talks about like Indian mythology or somehow Indian traditions influencing contemporary occult activities, except in this story where the squire learns stuff from, from Indian rituals. He writes, or this is the guy speaking, may I say that he flouted the sanctity of things as great as space and time and that he put to strange uses the rites of Sartan half-bred red Indians once encamped upon the hill. Uh, end quote. Now, the language he uses, he's, he's got a throwback sort of dialect. Like he uses Sartan instead of certain. He says S-A-R-T-A-I-N, Sartan instead of certain. Um, and we also get some Dutch traditions mixed here. We got some commentary on 18th century immigration to New York. So, I mean, the history of New York is one of immigrants, whether you're looking at the late 19th, early 20th century or the 18th century or even earlier. It's always been an immigrant city. It's always been shaped by those things. So that's part of the story. And Rolcraft's certainly aware of that here. He's not saying that this earlier time was perfect, you know, that there was, you know, in a sense, I think he would almost say there's there's never a New York, an old New York to really preserve because it's always kind of culturally in flux because of all these different immigrant communities. Um, in fact, the same kind of anti, the same kind of nativism that Lovecraft has for contemporary New Yorkers is shared by this guy, but talking about the 18th century, where he says, but you must know, sir, that what the squire got from those mongrel salvages was but a small part of the learning he came to have. He had not been in Oxford for nothing, nor talked to no account with the ancient chemist and astrologers in Paris. Unquote. So he also gets some occult traditions from, from Europe. So all this is just set up to him finally taking him to the window in the house, which is going to prove to be a, like a time portal where you can look through and see New York, see the neighborhood at different points in time. And that's what we get. That's what we get at the climax of this tale. So first he shows him basically old, like, Greenwich before there's even like people there. Um, uh, quote, I looked out upon the sea of luxurious foliage, foliage, foliage unpolluted, and not the sea of roofs to be expected by any normal mind. On my right, the housing glittered wickedly, and in the distance ahead, I saw the unhealthy shimmer of vast salt marsh constellated with nervous fireflies. The flash died, and the evil smile illuminated the waxy face of the aged necromancer. I think this is the first time he's explicitly called out as a necromancer, which he's not raising the dead in the sense we normally think of necromancers, but he's raising the dead city, right? He's, he in a sense is a necromancer and the fact that he's able to fulfill this magic, but it's a necromancy for the city. So the next time travel we get is then to the 18th century and he's able to see all the beautiful architecture of the 18th century which has already been, much of its style has already been described, so Lovecraft doesn't go into it too much, but he sees all this. And then the narrator finally speaks. He doesn't say too much in this story, but he finally, he finally kind of asks something directly to our, uh, I guess our protagonist. He is the one who's actually moving things in this story. Uh, and he says, can you dare go far, meaning forward? He's saying, can you go forward, essentially? And he says he can, so they, they are able to look through it and see the future. And here's the description of the future. Um, I saw the heavens 
verminous with strange flying things and beneath them a hellish black city of giant stone terraces with impious pyramids flung savagely to the moon and devil lights burning from unnumbered windows the swarming loathsome and swarming loathsomely on aerial galleries i saw the yellow squint-eyed people of that city robbed horribly in orange and red and dancing insanely to the pounding of the fevered kettle drums the clamor of the obscure crotala and the manacle moaning of muted horns whose ceaseless dirges rose and fell undullantly like the waves of an unhallowed ocean of bitumen i saw this vista i say and heard as with the mind ear of the blasphemous domindale of cacophony which companioned it it was a shrieking fulfillment of all the horror which the corpse city had ever stirred in my soul Unquote. so that's the future i mean i don't know it's unless you're in lovecraft's mind i think there's nothing that horrible about what he's seen it i mean it could become more of a science fiction movie i guess um the sounds of the future city are what's like most horrifying for this guy and we've seen sounds being used in the suggestion of horror when talking about new york earlier certainly in his letters but a little bit in red hook too like the, it's actually the sounds of the immigrants more than their presence that seems to offend him uh, we have the yellow peril here so we got the yellow squint-eyed people so um the real point here though and i think what lovecraft's trying to say about in this description and i don't think he does the best job here but what he's trying to say is the city is completely dead there's no ties to the past anymore and and maybe they it's already gone it's already too late but not entirely because our narrator is able to go to neighborhoods that where you still have that old georgian architecture uh he is still able to exist in the city um but as the story ends we're we're, we're being told by lovecraft that that's over like you may you all you're seeing is like the death throes of of old new york if you will they can't exist anymore it, they they they're, they're done for and this is evidenced by the fact that he dies uh he doesn't just die though he kind of melts away but first there's the the revelation that he's the squire he's the one who had a touch of all this occult magic and if probably already figured that out um but then once this realization is expressed and made clear he starts to to rapidly age and then eventually to melt he gets this just really nice description that goes on for about a page of his decaying and aging face rotting face eventually turning to to liquid um our narrator eventually is kind of thrown down into the cellar and the whole house is destroyed um so once again we have a, a destroyed house uh you know kind of an eradication usually the destroyed house is used to eradicate some old tradition or some old cult or something dangerous like Innsmouth or in the horror at Red Hook. It's that it's the Red Hook building, the Sidem House, and the terror or the picture on the wall. It's the, it's the house where that man lives. Uh, here, I think it's more of a symbol of the destruction of the past altogether because this is a throwback to that age that Lovecraft adored so much. Um, but it's gone now, so I think symbolically we're seeing the destruction of the past. And he escapes. Uh, quote about me and my exhaustion, I could only I could see only strange walls and windows and old cannibal wolves, wolf roofs. The steep street of my approach was nowhere visible, and the little I did see succumbed rapidly to the mist that rolled in from the river, despite the glaring moonlight. Um, so I think even that whole neighborhood he was in is suggested that it it's suggested here that whole neighborhood is gone. 
Um, you know, maybe if we want to take this, you know, as one of Lovecraft's experiences, maybe it really was he found some neighborhood with some interesting old architecture and he kind of observed it and he never was able to find it again or or we came back another day and it looked different to his eyes and it's kind of like well what happened to it maybe there's a story um behind there about what's maybe someone who dug the letters who read a lot more of the letters than i did can can speak to that um so what does our narrator do after this well what can he do he goes back to new england all right now this is before lovecraft himself decided to go back to new england so, but it's certainly a foreshadowing of his own personal journey back to New England after seeing what New York really is. Uh, the conclusion of the story is, I repeat that the city is dead and full of unsuspected horrors. Whether he has gone, I do not know, but I have gone home to the pure New England lanes upon which fragrant, fragrant sea winds sweep at evening. So we get a little bit of a touch of the sea at the end which is a nice little touch, but there it's a source of comfort rather than fear, as it so often is. So that's He. That's my thoughts on He. It's, it's a relatively short tale. It's only about 10 pages. You can you know, just sit down and, and read it fairly quickly. Um, I think it's really interesting. I think it's his most comprehensive New York story in that it looks at the most... It looks at the city most comprehensively from its past to its future, and we get a sense of really what Lovecraft thought about this machine culture he saw emerging around him. We do have the anti-immigrant narrative here as well, uh, not laid on as thick as in the horror at Red Hook, but it is still there. So I think this is the one-stop shop for getting Lovecraft's views of New York, if you don't want to read the letters. Um, but uh, we're not quite done with his New York stories. He wrote one more, uh, and I hope you will join me uh, next time when I'll be looking at the final and the most, I guess, concise and most focused of Lovecraft's New York stories, Cool Air, uh, which is more of a mad scientist, little science fiction story. It's not even uh, quite the horror story. Uh, it doesn't have cosmic horror in quite the same way. But it's a nice little tale. Uh, it's still set in New York, so we are going to get a little bit more of his his perspective on, on New York City. But it's a much more personal tale, um, and it's a fun one. I think a lot of people like this story because it just has a great. It's almost got it's almost like a Poe-esque ending in a way. It's a lot about the mood. Um, in that sense, it's a throwback to some of like what his earlier tales were like, and it's just a lot of fun. So. I hope you'll join me next time when I give you some of my thoughts about Cool Air and we can wrap up this uh, mini-series on, on Lovecraft's uh, New York stories. Um, but if you have any thoughts about He, uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll just look forward to uh, you joining us next joining us next time when we look at Cool Air. Thanks for listening. Yeah.